I ever wanted was a fair chance. Because if I could get a fair chance, I could excel. But it felt like no matter what you were trying to do, you were not getting a fair shot. You would not get a fair opportunity. The military and military school for me showed me a different way. That's Maryland's new governor, Wes Moore, poised to be the Democratic Party's next superstar, reflecting on how being sent away to military school when he was 13 turned his life around. I'm Margaret Hoover. This is the Firing Line Podcast. God bless Maryland, and let's get to work, everybody. Thank you so much. Moore, who grew up on the brink of poverty, suffered an early tragedy when his father died in front of him at three years old. But in a remarkable story of triumph over adversity, he went on to become a Rhodes Scholar, served in the 82nd Airborne Division in Afghanistan, became a best-selling author, and CEO of a major anti-poverty charitable foundation, all before being elected as Maryland's first black governor last fall. I knew I wanted to be a public servant because I was gonna fight for people like my mom, and I was gonna fight for people like my dad. I sat down with Moore at the end of his first legislative session, where all 10 of his policy priorities passed with bipartisan support. That's right, 10 for 10. Pretty good start, Governor. Pretty good start. We discussed the challenges facing his state and his plans to confront them, including child poverty. I believe from the bottom of my heart, we're gonna solve this. We can fix this. And crime. For the past eight years, we thought we could just focus on sentencing. And what has that gotten us? And three months into his new job, I asked more about the speculation already buzzing about his political future. No one else needs to caution me on looking elsewhere because I'm not looking elsewhere. I love what I'm doing. Governor Wes Moore, welcome to Firing Line. It's great to be here. In November, you became the first black governor of the state of Maryland. And you're a political newcomer, but you've had a diverse set of experiences. You've been a Rhodes Scholar, a White House fellow, You've seen combat in Afghanistan. You've been a New York Times bestselling author. Um, and you led a major anti-poverty nonprofit organization in New York. But despite all of those experiences, a New York Times article from 1996, when you were just 17 years old, noted that you had your sights set on politics even then. What took you so long? <laughs> well, you know, I, I, I have consistently been trying to figure out how exactly do you make your impact in the world? Right. I mean, I am. It's not lost to me that I'm coming off of inauguration, where you know I was decades removed from being a kid who was 11 years old who had handcuffs on my wrist. Uh, you know, being the kid who was a you know the the son of an immigrant single mother uh, who was raising three children on her own, a, a kid who was sent away to military school when I was 13 years old, uh, and in the process of that time period. Uh, I've now transitioned into someone who's now the 63rd governor of the state. And I knew at an early age that I, I wanted to be a public servant. I wanted to make a difference. I wanted to make an impact on the world. And, uh, and you know, whether it was joining the army when I was 17 years old or, or starting a, a, a social venture, a successful social enterprise and a small business, or whether it was leading one of the largest poverty fighting organizations in this country, uh, you know, I knew I wanted to be a public servant because I was gonna fight for people like my mom. And I was gonna fight for people like my, my dad who died in front of me when I was three years old. And so I think the journey into public service uh, was not a new thing at all. And I think that was one of the things that resonated most with voters uh, in the state, because if they wanted somebody who had a long political career, they had plenty of options to choose from, from that frame. Uh, but if they wanted someone who just believes in the, in, the, in the beauty and the purity of public service, and that we could go faster as a state and build inclusively, I think that's what resonated with, with the people in the state. You've said that everything in our lives from the air we breathe to the water we drink to the home that we live in, it was a result of a policy decision. Yes. One of your earliest memories you just referenced is when you were three years old and your father collapsed and died in front of you just hours after seeking medical care in a local emergency room. What happened and how was his death the result of a policy decision? Yeah, he, um, he died from something called acute epiglottitis. Which is, uh, which is basically every one of us for the epiglottis, we have something in our throat which covers your windpipe. And every time you breathe or chew or, or speak, it lifts up because it allows air 
to get inside of your body. And, and what acute epiglottitis is, essentially it becomes so swollen that it just sits on top of the windpipe. And so in essence, what happened was my, my father's body suffocated itself. Uh, he was actually in, in media. Uh, he was a journalist. And, uh, and he just finished a, a show, he was doing a radio show. And he went home and uh, he was saying that something was wrong with his throat, uh, that he was having difficulty swallowing and difficulty breathing. Uh, it was a difficult night for him. The next morning he went to the, the hospital he took himself to the hospital. And, uh, and when he got there, uh, you know, the, the doctors weren't exactly sure what to do with him. Where as, uh, as his clothes were disheveled and his face was unshaven. And when, uh, uh, when my mother arrived at the hospital, they asked her questions like, is your husband prone to exaggeration? And he was given the simple diagnosis of, uh, go home and get some rest. And if it got worse to come back, uh, there was assumption of whether or not he had insurance. And he left the hospital, he went to the house, and then he died hours later. Uh, I know that what happened with my father and the, and the heartbreaking thing about it is that I know it's still happening, uh, that we are seeing how essentially challenges within the healthcare system, challenges of believability, challenges from everything from the way we look at uh, prenatal to postpartum uh, to the way we deal with community uh, community uh, supports. It's all being shaped and influenced by prejudices, ideals, and assumptions. Uh, my father fell victim of that. And I think it's become such an important part of how I just think about the world, uh, how I think about what our responsibility is in the world. And, um, and I know I'm just, um, well, I know that I'm very, very proud that his DNA runs through me and I carry his name. Um, it's also that I carry his legacy in me in the way that I think about everything that I, that I want to get done. You think about how your life would have been different if he had stayed part of it? I, um, I do. But I, but I don't harp on it. You know, honestly, I, I think um, I used to a lot. And I used to think about it a lot where uh, I would almost look at it as a, as, a, as a crutch. Where it was, you know, well, I can't do X, Y, and Z because my father's not around. And, you know, I, you know it wasn't fair what happened. And, and, I, and I used it and I, and I looked at it as something that uh, gave me almost an excuse why I couldn't compete. Um, but I think one thing that started happening when I was, um, really probably my teenage years is, is, uh, I started realizing that those things were never my deficits. They were my armor because I now view the world where I'm never going to see anything again in my life. That's going to ever going to make me flinch. I'm just not built that way anymore. And I think that the, the challenges that we face the obstacles that we've had in our lives. Um, it's a larger preparation that I think about, you know, you can even look back in, in the, you know, I'm a person who's a, of a very deep faith. I, I think about the story of Job, where, you know, Job had this, had this sorrow of almost asking God, why are you doing this to me? And God essentially looked back at Job and said, it's because I'm preparing you. And, uh, and so I, I um, I, I, I used to think a lot about, you know, how things could have been different. Um, but I think the way I really, what I really think now is uh, I don't control that. And so the thing that I do control is I just want to make sure that I'm living life now that's going to make them proud. After your father died, your mom relocated to the Bronx and she worked multiple jobs to send you to a prestigious private school in the Bronx, Riverdale Country School, where... Um, you didn't excel, skip school, <laughs> got in fights. And at 13, your mom switched directions and made true on a threat and sent you to military academy. You went to Valley Forge Military Academy in Pennsylvania, where in the first days there, you tried to run away multiple times. Yeah. Uh, but eventually you excelled. What turned you around? Um, 
You know, I, I, I actually, I don't know if there was like one thing or one moment because I just think continually my, my life and especially my time period is kind of one of these two steps forward, one step back, two step forward, one step back. Uh, and so I definitely don't know or think that there was one thing that changed me. Um, it was hard and it was challenging and it was difficult. Um, I, I do think something though happened where I started feeling a sense of accountability for something bigger than myself. One thing that we that happened in, in military school, and the military does the same type of thing, but very early, they're gonna put you in charge of something, right? And they're gonna make it something small, uh, but they're gonna give you a real sense of responsibility over something. And first, it'll be a hallway or a room, right? If the room is clean, we'll congratulate you. And if the room is dirty, then Lord help you, right? But you're responsible for it. And so if the room is, if I see you drinking a water bottle and you throw a water bottle in the corner, I'm gonna, I'm gonna scoop you up and say, hey, you know, you gotta find a trash can because I'm not gonna get in trouble because you can't, because you decide that you're just gonna throw a bottle in the middle of the room. So you have that initial thing you're responsible for and you do that well. And then you get promoted. Now you're charged with a little bit more. Now they're gonna charge you to charge a building or a squad of people. And then a little bit more. Now you got a platoon. Now you got a company. But there's this graduated sense of responsibility that I think I took to where I wanted that feeling. I enjoyed the idea of leading uh, and I felt I was good at it. But what was really interesting for me is you also realize it's no different than what's happening to so many other kids out here. Where for so many other kids, it's like, you know, they're simply looking for that sense of belonging. And when you find people, you find kids who are involved in gangs or drug organizations and people say how complicated they are, they're, they're, they're really not. It's, like, it's literally modeling a Fortune 500 company or modeling a military organization. And, and so I, I think the thing that happened to me was I was searching to be a part of something bigger, bigger than myself. And I think in military school, I was able to find that. There's an excerpt of Colin Powell's autobiography, My American Journey, that you say you read over and over. Powell wrote, quote, the army was living the democratic ideal ahead of the rest of America, beginning in the 50s, less discrimination, a truer merit system, and leveler playing fields existed inside the gates of our military posts more than in any Southern City Hall or Northern Corporation. The army, therefore, made it easier for me to love my country with all its flaws and to serve her with all of my heart. You went on to serve in the 82nd Airborne in Afghanistan. What was it about Powell's words that resonated? They, um, they spoke to me in a way that I don't know I'd ever been spoken to before. You know, I, I, I think I, I still, there is, this, there is this dichotomy and this challenge, I think for young kids, and particularly for young black kids who are coming up, where it's, it's um, you find yourself in this, uh, you know, in this space and in an environment where you know the histories, you know the legacies, and for frankly, for so many of us, you know you are existing in the consequences of the legacies. And so you still are trying to find your way in a world that oftentimes feels very chaotic and where the rules were not written for you or by you. And I think when I saw and what I saw when I experienced when I went to military school, this chance where I was moving quickly and excelling, where I had the opportunity to lead people, where by the time that I, I was a, a senior in high school, I was 17 years old, and I was in charge of 100 plus cadets, uh, where by the time I left after my second year of, of, of college, I was the number one ranking cadet in the entire Corps, right? 800 plus people that I had under my control and command. And that was something that I think really, not just, that's why General Powell's words resonated so deeply with me was all I ever wanted and all I ever sought was a fair chance. Because if I could get a fair chance, I could excel. But that was the, that was the distance, was it felt like no matter what you were trying to do, you were not getting a fair shot. You would not get a fair opportunity. The military and military school for me showed me a different way. And it showed me 
that it is not going to be perfect. But if you get a chance to actually show your stuff, you can end up being a company commander, a regimental commander, whatever it is that you hope or aspire to be. And I think that was, that's why his words, his example, not to mention the fact that he was a, you know, coming from a, a you know, a family of Jamaican immigrants who, who came up uh, in the Bronx. There was so much about his story that was, um, that was familiar. That's one of the reasons I think his words were so, um, were so important. And frankly, later on in life, um, why, his, uh, why his mentorship and friendship meant so much to yeah. him. Um, well, now you're governor. And the Maryland General Assembly has completed its first legislative session with you as governor. You had 10 priorities going into this legislative session, 10 bills that you wanted to have passed, ranging from increasing minimum wage to cutting taxes for veterans to expanding broadband access. And you have claimed victory for all 10. That's right. 10, <laughs> um, 10, 10 for 10. Pretty Numbers good start, lie. governor. Pretty good start. But, we, but I, I think it's a, it's a really good start for the state. Uh, you know, I, I'm very clear that everything we got done, we got done in partnership. And, and the thing that I'm most proud of, of the 10 bills that we laid out, and, and, and you're absolutely right. I mean, it included everything from the most full frontal assault on child poverty that this state has ever seen. It means that we now have, for, for veterans, uh, for military veterans and combat veterans under the age of 65, it's the largest tax cut that they have received in a generation. It means we now have the first service year option in the entire country. The state of Maryland is leading the entire country. And we got all of those bills passed bipartisan. Every single one we received Republican and Democrat support for. And so when we said that we were gonna leave no one behind, when we said that we were gonna go everywhere, when I went to parts of the state that were true Republican parts of the state, and people said to me, they're like, you're spending a whole lot of you know, time here. Uh, you know, uh, you know, don't, don't you know that this is, you know, these aren't really, you know, blue areas. And I say, yeah, but I'm excited to be your governor too. And I'm going to be back and I'm going to be back while I'm governor. We meant that. And so I think what it, what the past 90 days has shown is that we're moving with a different kind of pace in the state of Maryland. We're moving with a different kind of partnership in the state of Maryland. One where everybody's going to be seen, everybody's going to have a seat at the table and where we're going to leave no one behind. And so I'm really, really proud of what we got done in this first session. Marylanders seem to like bipartisanship, and they seem to be, on the whole, pretty moderate. Uh, your Republican predecessor, Larry Hogan, um, ended his term with approval ratings in the 80s from Democrats. Uh, it's a fundamentally different question to be a Democratic executive with a Democratic supermajority. First of all, will you have 80% support from Republicans? <laughs> I, I, um... I'm and not, how I'm do not, you think about bipartisanship? Yeah, truly, because the the balance of power is different. I mean, I'm not I'm not going to judge or base my legacy based on approval ratings. Uh, I, I want my legacy to be based not on not on a poll. Uh, I want my legacy to be based on the accomplishments we got done, and I, and I'm and I'm excited about the fact that we're off to a really good start, uh, and we're doing it with with a measure of bipartisan approval. Why is bipartisanship important to you? I don't, I don't believe in bipartisanship for bipartisanship's sake. Um, what I, because again, I'm not, I, I don't come from a political background, right? I mean, before I ran for office, I was a combat veteran. I was a small business owner and I ran a, a poverty fighting organization. So I, I don't, I don't come from it from a perspective of it's really important that we get X or really important that we get Y. I come from a, from a perspective of I care more about if it's a good idea than where the idea came from. Uh, you know, I always say, you know, when I was, when I was leading soldiers, you know, a question I never once asked my soldiers, what's your political party, right? It never came up. And so the thing that I know is that the policies that we're pushing forward, uh, it's not just about, can we get a policy passed? Because you're absolutely right with a, with a democratic majority in the house and the Senate, you could get things passed just getting Democrats. I'm not concerned about just getting them passed. I need them to work. And I need them to work for everybody in the state. And the way you're going to do that is by making sure that everybody is actually part of the conversation. Um, when you look at Republican states that have super majorities in the legislature and the executive, uh, I'm looking at Texas, Florida, Tennessee. They have taken a very different approach that we, you've just modeled in your first legislative right. session. Um, they've forced through new restrictions on abortion, voting limits, 
limiting the power of political minorities. And, you know, how do you think about, as the executive of a state with a supermajority in the same party, preventing Maryland from falling victim to the same kind of intense political polarization that we see in other parts of the country? That's not who we are as Marylanders. I, I, I believe deeply as, as, a, as Marylanders, we, we believe in the idea of being able to see our neighbors and not push them off to the side. We believe in the idea of actually increasing freedoms and opportunities uh, for our neighbors and, and not restricting them. Uh, and, and so, you know, I, I understand, uh, you know, other states and other chief executives, uh, they can have their own motivations. Uh, and they can have their own initiatives they're trying to pull through. Uh, but when I say that this is gonna be a state where we leave no one behind, I mean that. And, and that means that we are going to make sure we are providing measurements of accountability, access to freedoms uh, and supports that our neighbors need and our neighbors are seeking for. And it also means that the state of Maryland is gonna lead. Uh, you know, I, I do understand that there uh, there could be some headwinds, political headwinds that might be coming from Washington or or uh, or examples that other governors are going to show. Uh, I, I'm not, and I have not been for a while in the business of of, of following a herd. Uh, Maryland is going to lead, and I think that's what that's what they asked me to do. Um, and you've reached out to Republicans this session. I mean, there's you know good open source reporting of of your efforts. Yes. To build relationships with the Republicans. And, and, and I think that was, it was important, but not because they are Republicans. It was because there's some good ideas that they came up with. I was like, let's incorporate that into the work we're doing. Or when I said, you know, listen, we're, we're trying to work on increasing a minimum wage. And I specifically wanted to go to some of my Republican friends who were in Western Maryland and the Eastern shore and say, let me explain why this, why this is important and why it's not just uh, important in Baltimore or Prince George's County or, or Montgomery County, why this is important over in Queen Anne's and why it's important over in Allegheny and why it's important in every single jurisdiction in the state of Maryland. Because we want to get rid of the days, for example, that, that people are working jobs and in some cases, multiple jobs and still living at or below a poverty line. That this is going to impact the families in your jurisdictions as much as it is anybody else, and so for me, it wasn't just uh, just about let's let's uh, you know let's you know go make sure that there's a uh, a ceremonial uh, process of trying to get Republican votes, or, or it wasn't a uh, uh, you know it wasn't performative. It was really because I believe that if we can actually get a chance and sit down and discuss the merits of these bills, discuss the merits of the issues, learn from each other that I think we're gonna to get to a better conclusion and one that I think as a state, we can move together, uh, you know, move together uh, appropriately on. Of your first 10 priorities, were any of them from Republicans? Yes. Well, I can tell you that, um, that every single one of them was shaped by Republicans because we didn't just say, here's what it is, everybody. Every single one of them, we worked with Republican lawmakers to be able to say what's possible, what do you all think? Here's my thinking on this. Here's the data that I'm looking at. Do you want to challenge it? Do you want to influence it? And so I can tell you every single one of our bills were influenced by Republican lawmakers in the state of Maryland. And I think that's, and I think that's actually why we ended up receiving Republican votes and Republican support on every single one of our bills because they actually felt like they were part of the process. You know, and that's one thing I'll say, even for people who, even for many Maryland lawmakers who might disagree with the conclusion I think they would also argue though, but at least we felt heard. At least we felt like we were part of the process. Now, at the end of the day, the governor's gonna make the, the decisions that the governor wants to make, the governor's gonna introduce what the governor wants to introduce, but it, it wasn't because of a lack of understanding of where people feel. It was because I did understand it and just came to the conclusion that, uh, that our administration came up with. But every single one had Republican influence, feedback, and at least their thoughts that incorporated into the final bill. And that's, uh, and I think that's why we got bipartisan approval. You've noted that Maryland has seen an alarming increase in shootings and homicides. Um, in the last eight years, violent crime is a statewide problem. According to data, your big data guy, data collected by the Baltimore Sun, there have been more than 300 homicides in Baltimore every year since 2016. I don't need to tell you that. Um, and the majority involve guns. 
Um, of the 10 bills that you proposed, that you focused on in this first legislative session, none were directly focused on public safety. Why not? I think actually many of them actually were. Uh, and it's because public safety is not going to be exclusively about guns or about incarceration. We are really taking an all of the above approach when it comes to public safety. And I, I think about the fact that our first budget, I, you know, I released the first proposed budget two days after inauguration, and that included a historic $122 million that we were putting towards local law enforcement to make sure that local law enforcement had what they needed. Uh, and that included $17.5 million that went to Baltimore City alone. We also made sure that they had historic funding uh, that focused on things like license plate readers and, and knowing that if we're having legal guns that are flowing into our communities, that there is actually a tracking and a mechanism to be able to, to identify and deal with that. That we, that we had level funding for the U.S. attorney, which was helping to deal with organized crime. And so we knew that we both had to fund those things. And those are things we could do from the budget. But it was also about that we had record funding in public education. And then we also put $107 million into mental health. And so this was really an all of the above approach in the way that we have to deal with public safety in our state. Um, you say you can't arrest your way out of it. Can't. Um, what will you do? How will you focus on violent crime? Yeah. Well, I mean, you, you have to make sure that there's real measurements of accountability. Uh, but, but you're also not just going to, you know, you're not going to militarize your way out of something that is a much larger challenge. Uh, that you have to make sure that all these components are going to be supported. That we need to have a police force that moves with appropriate intensity uh, and absolute integrity and full accountability. And that also means we have to you know, work with our local law enforcement to make sure that they have the local law enforcement that they need. Right now, if you take a look at Baltimore City alone, they are down hundreds of officers, right? So there's some basic accountability that's not happening. But also, we need to make sure that we have our kids and our individuals who are not ending up in lives of crime in the first place. That when a person's coming back from incarceration, that there are options for them to be able to re-enter the economy and not ones that's pushing them into a dark economy. That when we have, that we're actually creating uh, pathways for students to be able to think about their lifetime and their long-term prospects. It's one of the reasons that I'm so excited about the service year option for, for high school graduates, because I think that that's not just something that's gonna help for service. It's gonna create true employment pipelines for people that our young people need in this moment. So it really is an all the above approach. So, okay, well then with respect to policing and violent crime, I mean, you, um you're describing not not an acute fix towards the problem of violent crime, but a, but a sort of a D all of the above approach. That so this is gonna take sort of a, a whole of, maybe whole of government, but a, a much That's more exactly right. holistic approach. Because we've tried it the other way, right? For the past eight years, we thought we could just, you know, let, well, let's just focus on sentencing. And what has that gotten us? In the past eight years, we have seen how hom the homicide rate in the state of Maryland has doubled in the past eight years. We have seen that in the past eight years, the, the rate of, of non-fatal shootings in the state of Maryland has doubled in the past eight years. We've tried that way. It does not work. If we are not finding out ways of being able to support local law enforcement, support the people whose job it is to you know, protect us and, and keep us safe, and at the same time, putting together all the additional supports that are gonna be necessary to make sure that our communities are safer, are stronger, that our children have better pathways, then you are literally asking police to take on a job that is frankly unfair to ask them to continue to try to fix a larger societal problem. That's not fair to our law enforcement officers. And so I think you're gonna have to do both because just thinking that we are going to, uh, going to focus on, on policing alone to fix the challenge, we have tried that. And it is little, and we have, during that period, we have literally watched the homicide rate double, and we haven't been able to do anything about it. You have been outspoken about, um, first of all, you were endorsed by Maryland's Fraternal Order of Police, the police unions. Um, you have rejected the defund the police rhetoric from the Democratic side, but the defund movement has its roots in Baltimore. There are local activists who say that, quote, the biggest budget hog in Baltimore is the police department. They want money to be directed elsewhere. How do you engage with them? I, I think if people look at our budget and people look at our priorities, they see where we are on this. 
uh, that you know you, you can't make a historic investment in local law enforcement. Uh, you can't as 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 we did. You cannot put you know seventeen and a half million dollars in Baltimore City alone. Uh, you can't find you know the fact that to your point that we've received the support of the Fraternal Order of Police and the thing that I that I promised the things that we're making good on is that you're going to have a seat at the table as we are pushing together reforms, as we're thinking about what does it mean to create a 21st century policing system that is helping, that is one component to creating a stronger, safer society. I, I think our actions speak louder than, than our words on it. And so I think people see that, you know, we really are taking a very, uh, a very holistic approach in terms of making people feel safe in their own communities, in their own homes, in their own skin, and also that we are focused on creating pathways for people to be able to have a long-term uh, contributing life in the state of Maryland. Let me ask you about poverty. Um, you have written extensively about how you grew up on the brink of poverty, how um, you were later the CEO of a major anti-poverty nonprofit organization, Robin Hood Foundation. Um, now you're governor of the state of Maryland and you have touted that you are pursuing, quote, the most full assault on child poverty right. in the state's history. Um, you, exceed, you succeeded in extending and expanding the state's earned income tax credit um, and the child tax credit. As you look back at your experience as, as a private citizen in the nonprofit sector, in the private sector, and now in government, yeah. why do we still have such persistent poverty? And who are the most effective actors? at fixing the problem? Because I know you have written that we understand more about poverty now. Than ever before. So what does it take to fix it? Yeah. This was one of my big whys. Why I decided to run for office in the first place. Um, I loved the work that I was doing and we were really effective at it. You know, we raised and allocated over $600 million towards some of the most effective poverty fighting tools and mechanisms in the country. And um, I remember we were working uh, with a former governor um, on the issue of, of making adjustments to the child tax credit because this has been proven to be one of the most effective tools that we have to be able to lift children up the economic ladder. And uh, we were working, working with him and I, I literally sent the note saying, you know, you should put this in the state of the state. Here's the line you should use. I mean, literally I turned into a speechwriter, right? Looking for the line that they should use in state of state. And I get an advanced copy of the speech and, um, and there was nothing there about the child tax credit or about child poverty as a whole. And I remember speaking with our head of public policy of the, of the organization I ran. And, uh, and after I was going on my large diatribe and ranting, he stopped me and he said, listen, we've worked for six months to try to get them to include a line in the speech. What if you could write the whole speech? And that's the point. And so that's why a few weeks after, um, I was inaugurated. I gave the speech that I wanted to give. And that speech was a speech where I called for a universal bipartisan full assault on child poverty in the state of Maryland. Where if you look at just in our first legislative session, the first, uh, first 90 days, uh, we held true to that. Where, you know, we, in addition to doing things like having an, an enhanced earned income tax credit, which is just truly incentivizing work. It's just telling people that we don't, we should, gone should be the days where people actually have the options of choosing between should I work or receive benefits, like actually give people the proper supports for working. By doing things like making permanent the child tax credit, just looking at those elements alone, we are now watching how tens of thousands of children have now just been lifted up the economic, uh, economic ladder in the stroke of a pen by increasing the minimum wage and by speeding up the minimum wage to $15. We are gonna see how, as soon as that is implemented, that is going to lift up over 150,000 Marylanders up the economic ladder. When you combine all of these elements with everything that we're also doing around education, what we're doing around job training and job reskilling, and frankly, we are going to be a state that is going to, you know, we have some of the best four-year colleges in America, here in the state of Maryland, but we need to get rid of this myth that every single one of our children need to attend one and be successful, right? When we do all of these things in concert, we are actually going to watch a state that I believe from the bottom of my heart, we're gonna solve this. 
we can fix this. You know, and, and that's the thing. If you look at the data around the issue of poverty and specifically child poverty, we're, you know, I say, we're not talking world peace, right? Where people, it's like, it's just pie in the sky and you're just making stuff up. There's data to show we can actually be effective on this. And what's happening right now in the state of Maryland, we are making a collective choice as a state that we can be both more competitive and more equitable, that we're making a decision as a state that we can end child poverty and we will. Um, you inherited a $5 billion budget surplus from your predecessor. A lot of people say, a lot of these anti-poverty initiatives are expensive. How do you do both? How do you move the ball forward and combat poverty while still being fiscally responsible? Yeah, I think the thing that people saw, in, even in our first weeks, and and uh, and you know, and and it is true. We, we uh, as people came in, it was reported that there was a, a two billion dollar surplus, and we had a a, a half a billion dollar write down in my first weeks uh, in office. So I think we we came into it with an approach that we can be and we can create a budget that was going to be bold without being reckless. And so that's why I'm proud of the fact that in our first budget, uh, we you know yes, we made historic funding in public education, and we had 10% in our rainy day fund, uh, you know, in, in, the, in the case of any economic, uh, potential economic downturns or any economic headwinds, um, that we said that, you know, we are going to make uh, very real investments in being able to provide uh, economic supports for, for uh, small businesses, making sure that we can be both more competitive, reducing regulatory red tape, and also, we are going to make sure that we are providing true measures of, of, of economic growth uh, that's going to focus on new industries of the future. And so the way, you know, I, I'm a person who, you know, as you mentioned, I, I'm a data person. I, I am, I am data driven and heart led. And the things that I know is that the things that we are investing in are things that are going to have significant societal return on that investment. That's how we approached our budget. And that's one of the reasons I'm really proud that our budget was able to, uh, both be bold, be ambitious, and also know that we're being incredibly responsible with taxpayer dollars. This program, Firing Line, was hosted by William F. Buckley Jr. for 33 years, as you likely know. The very first program on Firing Line that William F. Buckley hosted was with Michael Harrington, mm. a public intellectual who is a socialist who is really credited with informing much of the architecture of Lyndon Baines Johnson's war on poverty. In 1966, Michael Harrington and William F. Buckley had this conversation about the war on poverty. Being kicked around and being pushed down and living in dense, miserable housing and dealing with cockroaches and rats are not the kinds of things that make one a, uh, a balanced, content, uh, normal and adjusted, healthy personality. Yes, and, and I, I couldn't agree with you more, but I'm, I'm trying to raise the following uh, a problem. Uh, namely, to, to what extent is a poverty program that is materially designed to dissipate such difficulties as you have elaborated, to what extent can we count on it uh, to alle alleviate all of these concomitant uh, miseries? So the debate about the role government can play in the war on poverty and eliminating poverty has changed dramatically in the last 60 years. The arguments that Harrington was making there about the role government should have are very different than the arguments you're making about how you're gonna help alleviate child poverty in the state. What have we learned? I, I think the thing that we have learned is, you know, when people would say to me uh, that poverty is a choice, and I understood what they were trying to say, and I'd say, you know, it actually is a choice. But it's not the choice of the person who feels poverty's oppressive weight on their shoulders, right? No, no, one, no one gets up in the morning and thinks and says to themselves, man, this poverty thing is really great. I'm really enjoying this. Um, it's the choice of our society. It's a choice of, of, of how much pain that we're willing to tolerate and endure. And, and I think about the fact that, you know, I, I've now just signed bills. Uh, whether it's a bill that's increasing and enhancing the earned income tax credit or making permanent the child tax credit, that's going to lift 10,000 children up the rung in the economic ladder. But I think it also begs the question, why were, there in the, why were they there in the first place? We chose to keep tens of thousands of children in those conditions. When we're raising the minimum wage to $15, to $15 and it's going to raise 150,000 Marylanders up 
a rung in the economic ladder. The question, you know, shouldn't, you know, it shouldn't just be a response and an applause and say, isn't that wonderful that they're lifting them up? At some point, we have to ask the question, but why were they there in the first place? These are policies that, you know, I, I ran one of the largest poverty-fighting organizations in this country. We, we devoted tens of millions of dollars just in my time there towards things like food insecurity programs, housing insecurity programs, funding education. But at some point, someone needs to ask the question, but why are there so many people who are food insecure? At some point, someone needs to ask the question why we're, why we're spending money funding, you know, doing public, edu- public education, but why do we have so many kids who are in public education settings that are not preparing them for either jobs or parent, preparing them for, for higher education? And so that's where I think that the thing that we have learned here is it's not just for us to understand what policies do we have to put in place to be able to relieve a bit of that human suffering? We also still cannot run away from the question of, but what role has policy had in creating these disparities in the first place? That's the place that I want us as a society and I want us as a state to also get to. Let me ask you about education. Um, Eight years in a row, of record funding to the schools, and yet 23 schools in Baltimore have 0% proficiency in math, according to a Fox 45 investigation. So there's recent state testing that said just 7% of Baltimore public schools, third through eighth graders, were proficient in math. There was a bipartisan program, it still exists, created by your predecessor, to provide scholarships for low-income families to send children to private schools. You sought to cut funding or phase it out, but Democratic Senate president sided with Republicans to restore some of the funding. What was your view about why children shouldn't be able to redirect some of those funds towards private school education? I I have a a singular focus of creating a world-class public school system in the state of Maryland. It 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 is abhorrent that we can have kids who are attending public schools, which is, uh, and we have a constitutional responsibility in the state of Maryland for us to be able to provide a quality public education system for all of our kids. And we have children who are not receiving a quality education. And so, you know, I've been, I've been very clear and I've said for, you know, throughout the process of the campaign and now, and now as governor, uh, we have to create, and my focus is going to be on creating a 21st century world-class public school system for all of our kids, which is by the way, we're over 95% of our kids uh, in the state of Maryland are, are gonna be attending. But for parents who wanna have a choice, shouldn't they? Yeah, I, I believe deeply in the idea that parents uh, uh, need to be and should be involved in their child's educational prospects. Uh, because I think what you find with both parents and educators is they both want the same things. They both want, they want our children to be able to be successful and to be able to, uh, to, be able to achieve everything that God intends for them to intends for them to achieve. Uh, I also know that when we're talking about public dollars and when we're talking about you know taxpayer dollars, how are we making sure that those taxpayer dollars have the largest societal return on that investment? And, and, and I believe deeply that we've got work to do. How are you gonna improve Maryland's public schools? Well, I think we have to really think about every aspect of them. Um, you know, I, I think we've gotta make sure we're starting earlier uh, you know, right now it's, you know, 80% of brain development happens in a child by the time that child is five years old. So why we have children starting school at five in the state of Maryland makes absolutely no sense. We've got to make sure we're starting earlier. Uh, we have to make sure we're recruiting more educators. It's one of the reasons why one of the bills that I introduced and, and was passed bipartisan is, uh, is, uh, is focusing actually on teacher recruitment and teacher retention, uh, providing more supports for educators because we have a shortage inside of our classrooms. Uh, that is is having incredibly damaging results for our kids uh, because it's end, it's end up increasing the level of of the, the student class size. Uh, that we have to be, create more pathways for students on things like uh, career and technical education. That you know every high school high school should not be getting evaluated based on their four year college acceptance rate. That's not the path for every student. It wasn't my path. Right? I went to a two-year college. I joined the army when I was 17 years old. And, you know, and, and I think that we need to make sure that every single child can have their own pathway regardless of where it started and regardless of where it's going to lead, but a pathway to long-term success. And so I think that on all these components 
to education. We need to make sure that we're thinking, we're being thoughtful. We need to make sure we have real measurements of accountability because I'm not someone who just simply says, well, let's just fund more. I need accountability. I need transparency. And we need to work in partnership because so much of these issues are local jurisdictions issues, and I get that. But that doesn't mean that the state can be hands off. We have to make sure we're working in partnership with our local jurisdictions to get the best results for our students. You tweeted on Inauguration Day that you enjoyed visiting with some students from a charter school yeah. for your inauguration. Are you comfortable with charter schools as an alternative and growing charter schools in the state of Maryland? I'm, I'm comfortable with, with high-performing public schools, and charter schools are public schools. So, so I, you know, I, I believe that we need to have high-performing public schools inside of the state of Maryland. Uh, and so, so whether that whether that public school is is a is a district school or a charter school, I think there's lessons learned, positive lessons learned that can be taken from 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 both of them. I just believe I believe we need to have high performing schools. But the line for you is that you don't want public dollars going to private schools. So, so you're against you're against that program. We 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 have to make sure we're creating a quality public education system. That's where the priority has to be. And specifically, specifically, when we're talking about taxpayer dollars that taxpayer dollars should be going towards forming that true public education, 21st century public education system that our students can, can benefit from. And, and I know that the, that the House and the Senate uh, came to a, a compromise and a compromise that I was, that I was comfortable with. Um, but my, my, my position on that we've got to focus on creating a 21st century public school system, my position on that has not changed. You served in Afghanistan you agreed with President Biden's decision to withdraw. You lament and were heartbroken at the manner and the circumstances of the withdrawal. I was. There are 80-some thousand Afghans who served arm-in-arm -arm with our military in Afghanistan who are here in the United States with very uncertain immigration status. In some cases, humanitarian parole may be expiring as soon as the end of the summer. And I wonder, as a veteran, what kind of moral obligation do we owe those Afghans who served arm in arm with you and our military when we were there for 20 years of war? And we're talking about people who didn't just serve arm in arm with us. Um, they risked it all. In many cases, with far, far fewer equipment than we were uh, kitted up with. And, um, and I can't help but think about so many people who we served with who would go home after running missions with us and would be met with night letters, which is basically letters that were left on their doors from the Taliban or whoever else and saying, we know you're working with the Americans and we're gonna kill you and your entire family. And the next day, they showed up to work again. I mean, the level of heroism that we saw from, from the Afghans and, and the people we served uh, arm in arm with and their families is, um, is, uh, is, pretty, is pretty remarkable. What kind of moral obligation do we have to them? Well, I think the, the moral obligation that we have is that for people who are willing to serve with us and sacrifice for us, that they should know that here, you're gonna have a, a, a place that is gonna provide a measure of safety and security for you. Um, that, that for, it was one of the things, and um, I know I pushed for before and I will continue to push for. Uh, and, and, and I think that the state of Maryland was right when the state of Maryland, when everything was happening, the state of Maryland said, you know, uh, we'll take them. If there are questions of, of, of occupancy or space, the state of Maryland, we can take on more people. We can take on these, these, uh, these interpreters and the people who serve with the U.S. military. And, and I have the exact same posture. Have we lived up to that promise? We have not. We haven't. Um, in the year 2000, the Baltimore Sun began writing stories about you, Wes Moore, because you won the Rhodes Scholarship. The Baltimore Sun was also writing about another Wes Moore, a man who ended up being sentenced to life in prison for the death of an off-duty police officer, Sergeant Bruce Prothero. Over time, having heard of the other Wes Moore, you decided to pick up a pen and write him a letter in prison and this developed into a series of letters, a series of visits, and a friendship that ultimately led to a book about you and the other Wes Moore. This book became a New York Times bestseller and really put you on the map. When was the last time you spoke to the other Wes Moore? 
Uh, I say probably a couple weeks ago. Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're still in, uh, uh, you know, I'm, I'm still, I'm still in communication um, with him and his, and his, uh, and his, and his family and, and such. Yeah. Um, you have said that the proceeds from the book sales were going to two nonprofit organizations, Dream Academy and City Year, both chosen by the family of Sergeant Prothero. Um, his widow denied ever directing proceeds to any charity, and I wondered, can you clear that up? Yeah, I, I've uh, you know I've, I've spoken with uh, with members of the, of the Prothero uh, family about this, and and you know one thing that I, I know is um, not only do I stand by uh, everything I said. Um, in addition to that, I know that the uh, the supports that I've received from the, from the members of the family uh, about this is the greatest endorsements that I've that I could ever receive. So, which which charity are the are the proceeds from the book being directed to? They're they're being uh, a portion of the proceeds are being directed to City Year and the U.S. Dream Academy. Okay. Um, so you just deny her account. Her account is uh, I'm, inaccurate. Uh, I, I, I'm, I'm going to keep my private conversation with okay. my family. Um, you're in your first term of governor, but you have already been compared to Ronald Reagan and Barack Obama. Um, there's a lot of speculation and anticipation about how you're going to do here as governor. And the Baltimore Sun editorial board cautioned you to reassure your constituents that you are, quote, entirely focused on their well-being and that the governorship is not a stepping stone to higher office. How distracting is that for your ability to focus on governing your state if others are already planning your future? Uh, I, I don't need to be cautioned on that by anybody because it's not something that's, that's, uh, that's, uh, that I'm even thinking about. I, I mean, I am, I'm literally living a dream right now where I am, uh, I'm the chief executive of my birth state where we've had a chance just in our first weeks of being able to move the state at a different type of speed. And I think the thing we're continuing to see is uh, the state appreciates it. And the state is behind us. And the state is ready. Where all the promises and all the things that we've said during a campaign trail, uh, we've been able to push on and make true and let people know if I said it, I meant it. And we're doing it. So I love my role and I love my job. And, and I don't need a, you know, no one else needs to caution me I'm looking elsewhere because I'm not looking elsewhere. I love what I'm doing. Governor Westmore, thank you for joining me. Thank you. Thank you.